those of you who weren't here last week, uh, I'm going to encourage you to, if you have an opportunity, to listen to the talk that I gave last week, because I gave a fairly lengthy introduction as to what this series is all about, and a little bit of uh, the grounding of the first question, why are we here? And this particular talk that I'm, I'd like to share with you, which is what is wrong with the world, is going to follow up from that talk. It's going to reference that a little bit. And so knowing a little bit of the content of last week is going to be helpful. It's not necessary, but it will be helpful for filling it out um, for you. So today I'd like to address this question, so what is wrong with the world? And uh, I will tell you that over this last week, in the course of all the news that has been happening, I think I rewrote this talk about 50 different times. Um, we had somebody actually, you know, we published the email, and the email automatically goes to Twitter and Facebook, and one of uh, our beautiful sparkers retweeted back, what is wrong with the world? Is the sermon going to be 12 hours long? Um, and that, I think, is a nice summary sentiment of what many of us might happen to be feeling. And so, um, honestly, there are moments throughout the days, throughout the weeks, when um, I'm just at a loss for words. And we have, as a community, uh, as a people, been through this far too often now. Um, you would think that we would be getting used to it, um, but thankfully we're not. That's, that's the good part. You don't ever get used to this. You don't ever let your heart become calloused. And you always recognize that there is really, really important work that needs to be done. Um, there's so many, like I said, there's so many talks that I just, I rewrote over and over again. I'm reminded of the first Christians and the context that they had to develop their faith and how they were to live and to love people that were deeply wounded and marginalized by the existing powers that were in existence then. And realizing yet again, this stuff matters. Again, going back to my last talk, what we believe matters in the world. And how we live matters. It makes a real difference. And there are all sorts of different ideologies, philosophies uh, that people glob onto to make their grounding in how they live and how they operate in this world. And it is our contention, it is our declaration that the way of Jesus is ultimately the most benevolent, the most kind, the most loving, the most gracious, the most humanitarian way in this world. And so, um, as I was thinking about today, and I, by the way, again, as I mentioned last week, I'm only one voice. You have many pastors and many teachers in this congregation, in this community, that can also speak to this. Um, but as I was thinking and processing, I have become even more impassioned with considering carefully what it really means to love God, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to welcome the stranger. That passage that Pastor Tom read um, and Pastor Mark read about loving your neighbor is the ultimate fulfillment of every single law that there is. Everything that you think about, everything that you do, every way in which you interpret should be done through that lens. And this comes straight from the heart of the ministry and the way of Jesus. So I have become even more impassioned about that recently. Now, it's mixed with a whole bunch of feelings. I'm sure many of us are feeling that way. But I hope that um, some of what I share, you know, I'm just one person, one voice. Uh, this, is my, this is my privilege and opportunity to share. But I know many of you have had beautiful conversations. Um, I'm hoping that this series, 
you know, especially this question, what is wrong with the world, actually meets and addresses some of what it is that we're all kind of wrestling with and are crying over as we should be. So a little bit of a preface to today as we go into this question that was already predetermined before the heavens and the earth were laid, the foundations of the earth were laid. What is wrong with the world? And again, we are going to hopefully dis- share with you a little bit of a decidedly Christian answer to that question. And if we can get to the core central idea of what Christianity, what Jesus, the biblical narrative says is wrong with the world, then possibly we can get to a solution. In answering this question, G.K. Chesterton has a very famous line back in the London Times. There was an article, actually, there was an essay contest. Dear friends, they wrote to many of these philosophers, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in the shortest and most profound response to this question, what is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. It was a very witty way of summing up, you know what is ultimately wrong with the world? I am. Here I am. I stand at that particular place. So that is one way of thinking about it. I think G.K. Chesterton's uh, Christian philosophy and his religion was informing some of that. It's going to come out of a little bit of this talk that we have today. Um, I'd like to also address that there are some Christians in this world that actually think that things being wrong with the world is a good thing. There are Christians that still are hoping and praying for the continual degradation of the world. This is unfortunately a very common uh, thought and idea. The whole idea is that this world is essentially ultimately going to burn, and those of us who believe in Jesus are going to be taken away from this place, um, kind of looking in the rearview mirror and going, thank God I'm not there anymore. And so there's a whole bunch of uh, religious ideas that still promote the end of the world, and I want it to come because when it comes, then good things are going to happen. And we're going to, in good spark fashion, question that. Is that, really, is that really what this is all about? Is that really the teaching? Is that really what Jesus was promoting in his ministry? The other uh, fundamental way in which we answer this question, what is wrong with this world, is ultimately to point to other people. We can clearly, clearly see that it's those people on that side of the aisle that are to blame for what is wrong, or that side of the aisle. Sometimes we point to particular institutions, technology, social media is clearly ruining the world. And then, of course, there's a lot of skepticism, a lot of antagonism in philosophical and religious circles to say, well, clearly religion is what is wrong with the world. Christopher Hitchens is one of the most famous voices uh, a couple of years ago before he passed away, was for, for many, many years. His famous book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And so part of the response that I think we all instinctively want to do is when we ask the question, what is wrong with the world? The reason why we have 12 hours that we want to share is because we can clearly list and name all the things that are wrong with the world. And they're usually people or names or institutions or parties and things like that. That is one possible way in which we could answer this. Well, surprisingly, I'm going to suggest that there, are act- there is actually this one thing that is wrong with this world. It's called sin. Now, if you've been around Spark and you hear me say that, you're like, wait a second. What's going on? Because this does not sound like a typical Spark way of addressing it. Clearly, sin is what is wrong with the world. And the reason why I'm going to answer it in that particular way is because that is the word that the Bible uses. That is the word that is drawn throughout the scriptures to describe what is wrong with the world. 
to describe how people have fallen out of favor with one another, to describe how people have completely lost relationship with God and have forsaken their relationship with the world. It is this word sin. It is this word transgression. There's actually two words here that sum that up. The first word is chata. Everybody say chata. And the second word is pesha. Everybody say pesha. Chata and pesha, respectively sin and transgression. Um, This shouldn't be a surprise to those of us who are here because we pray this every single week. Forgive us of our sins. Now, the reason why I say that some of you might be surprised is because Spark has traditionally, and it's traditionally in our six years of existence, really tried hard to think through words and terms carefully. And the traditional way in which this word is often used has been very damaging for many of us. But I'm going to promote and suggest to you this really is the right word. But hopefully through a little bit of what we're going to talk about, you will see it in a little bit of a different light. The biblical narrative is very, uh, I almost said clear, (laughs) another sparky thing. The biblical narrative seems to point to this over and over and over and over again. In fact, this word sin, chata, shows up in the Old Testament over 600 times. It's a very frequently used word. Again, part of the reason that this is a problem is because the word sin has been used so frequently, it's been used and overused, and it can mean anything from I am a sinner, finger-pointed, guilt and shame, condemnation, how dare you, and then all of a sudden we feel like we are belittled as a result of that label. In fact, um, the idea that I am a sinner or I am a chief of sinners as an identity, sometimes many of us actually learn that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, started out with this very first phrase, I am a sinner. And then we move on to, like, good news starts with that. So guilt and shame, some people actually embrace it. Sin is all those things that you are not allowed to do that are all the really fun things. And so some people actually really embrace that idea. Yeah, I'm a sinner, bring it on. And uh, I enjoy being a sinner and I might be going to hell, so let's have at it. So what is this word? What does it mean? And how does it describe what is wrong with the world? Uh, I think how this word is used and the depth of the narrative that it is pulling through that we often miss because we take that word, pull it out of its context, use it as a label, and then use it to condemn one another, that that abuse towards that term misses so much of what's really going on. And I think if we can get to a deeper understanding, then we'll get to a better understanding of of what that word is and maybe even redeem it a little bit. You know this picture? Who is this? David and Goliath. Very nice. What is David holding? Sling. Now, the ancient Israelites, the ancient Hebrews, had a way of fighting, and the sling was one of them. This is uh, an amazing, you do the study, it's incredible. They could take a stone that was about the size of a small baseball, and through their sling, make that thing fly at about 100, 120 miles an hour. So imagine getting hit in the head with a rock at that kind of a speed, so it's really huge. In the book of Judges, chapter 20, there is a battle that is ensuing between the Israelites and the uh, army of Gideon. And they all gather together, and they talk about these soldiers that were left-handed, not right-handed, left-handed. But what is amazing about that phrase is that they were able to use the sling with both hands. That's how skilled they were. And notice the word that is used here. 
Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, meaning that they were ambidextrous, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That word, to not miss, is the word chata, the word sin. If we put it in that particular phrase, they could, they could sling a stone at a hair at 100 yards and not sin. That is the word that's used there. Later on in Proverbs chapter 8, the word is used again. For those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, in other words, they miss actually accomplishing the finding. And there's that word again, sin. That entire phrase, fail to find me, is the word sin. So for those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who sin, harm themselves. And you notice that these translators translated this word fail to find me. Being able to hit a, hit a hair at 100 yards, missing that target is what it means to be sin. Not finding the thing that you are supposed to be finding is sin. These are, like I said, 600 times. These are just a couple examples. In Proverbs chapter 19, desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet, and the phrase is missed the way, but it's the word sin. In other words, if you are pursuing something and you haven't really thought about what it is that you're pursuing or the direction that you're going, you will miss the way that you're supposed to be going. If you don't type it into your GPS correctly or if you don't pay attention to it or somehow Waze is all whacked up for you, you are going to sin. You're going to miss the thing that you had intended to go after. Rather than this guilt and shame and almost an identity, you are a sinner, the words in these contexts is being used to describe not accomplishing what it is that you want to accomplish, not hitting what it is that you want to be hitting, not achieving what it is that you want to be achieving. achieving. Now, in this particular context, this guy is a sinner, because this happens over and over and over again, he didn't clearly hit his mark. And given that we're in World Cup season, I couldn't help but show you this particular video. You get to guess right away, or because the clip is very quick, which one of these people is the sinner. Can I tell you, I spent far too long on YouTube this week looking at videos entitled Celebrating Too Early. <laughs> that is an image of a goalkeeper who sinned. Now, again, guilt and shame, and there's obviously this kind of agony. Oh, I missed it. I missed it. But the point of the word, the point of the term, the point of using that is to say, there was something that you were attempting to accomplish. There was a goal that you were heading for. There was a target and a mark that you wanted to hit, and you just missed it. You didn't hit that goal, and you didn't hit that target. 
In other contexts, sin is also used, therefore, also as a distortion of the ultimate goal. Sometimes this word is used to describe you were, you, you said you were going for that particular goal, but you actually, because you distorted it, you were like, no, I, I don't think I really want to head in that direction. I kind of want to go around in this direction. You missed it because you ultimately distorted the goal. So in this definition and all throughout the, the Hebrew text, this word sin is used to describe you missed it. You just missed it. We didn't hit the thing that we were supposed to be hitting, which begs the question. And here's what we often don't go to next when we hear the word sin. If sin is about missing the mark or the target, then what is the mark and the target? That's the question that I feel like gets lost frequently in these conversations. Many of you might have actually heard this definition growing up in church, that sin is to miss the mark. Well, you missed the mark. And again, it sits there and it stays there. You are clearly a mark misser. That's what we're going to call you. You're a mark misser. You're a target misser. Shame on you. But part of the reason why the biblical writers use this word is to describe there is actually a target that you are supposed to be shooting for. There actually is a goal that you are supposed to be aiming for. And part of what the word and the term and the usage is supposed to invoke is, what is that goal? What are we supposed to be aiming for? And it's to remind us that we didn't get that goal. We're still supposed to be aiming for it. And a little bit of a clue Back to last week, part of that goal, in fact, a huge part of that goal, is to remind ourselves who we are created in the image of, and in whose likeness we are created, and in whose, uh, whose representative we are supposed to be in this world. So again, I'm referencing last week's talk about why are we here. That's going to be a part of it. Back to this particular image, I want you to think about this for just a second. If we think of sin only in these guilt and shame definitions, then ultimately we sin by thinking about sin only in these definitions. Are you with me? If we only think about sin as a label that we put upon people or things to describe their identity, their behavior, and we say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, then we actually sin because we are missing the fullness of what the biblical narrative is supposed to do. This, to me, is a great ironic tragedy. And part of the responsibility for people who are following Jesus is to ask the question, well, if sin is missing the mark, what ultimately is the mark? What's the goal? What's the target? And may we be realigned once again. Many of you know this phrase, the fall, because this is where this word is going to be used for the very first time. And the first time this word is used, it's going to pull in some beautiful resonances. This is a story that has been told. It's one of the most foundational stories of Christian thought and ideas. That God placed Adam and Eve, humanity and life, in the garden of pleasure and delight, the garden of Eden. And their responsibility was to care for and take care of it, to guard it and to serve it, and to be God's image bearers and representatives into that garden, into that world. But unfortunately, the woman that you gave me (laughs) took some of the fruit, ate it, And then that event that cascades down to the man and then ultimately to the snake and all of the blaming is what we often call the fall, the fall. And we are actually (laughs) uh, still wrought with this idea. 
of something called original sin that has been passed down to us, and it still wavers amongst Christian churches and ideas that we, when we were born, have inherited now this thing, this stain into our line, and there was nothing that we could have done. We, we were just simply born into it, and it was all because of that woman way back there, blaming Eve. And you know what's so fascinating about that? Because this is something that I hear Christians say all the time, that, you know, well, if it wasn't for Adam and Eve, or if it wasn't for Eve, and I want you to think about that carefully. Think about, we are blaming Eve for eating of the fruit, which is exactly what they were condemned for, what Adam was condemned for in the story of Genesis. He's like, don't, don't blame her. The whole blaming thing was the very thing that you were not supposed to do. And what do we do as we inherit this idea of sin is we blame Eve. We're doing the very same thing. There's a great irony in that. That idea of sin that has been passed down through the ages got its uh, start somewhere around the fourth century with a guy by the name of Augustine, so wrought with some anxiety, was really upset at his own sexuality and couldn't keep it together. And so he thought that the reason why I have this is because of that woman, right, reading the Genesis story. And Stephen Greenblatt, in his brilliant book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, sums up this entire history by saying that human sinfulness is a sexually transmitted disease. (laughs) The original story, actually, from that time, from the fall, what many people call the fall, the taking of the fruit, actually, that word sin isn't used there. The word sin is not used to describe what Adam and Eve did with the tree. They disobeyed. um, Their eyes were opened. But there's no inference that they sinned. The first word... The first occurrence, the first time the word sin is actually used is later when their children, Cain and Abel, bring offerings and they can't get along. One offering seems to be pleasing to God. The other offering is not pleasing to God. And then Cain starts to get jealous about this. Uh, Many of you know the story. Cain ultimately kills Abel. But God comes to Cain and then he says this phrase to him, which is the first time the word sin is used and packed with all sorts of meaning. And if you do not do well, and here's the first occurrence, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. If you do not do well, comma, then sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, there's a couple images there. First, the word sin is there, the thing that misses the mark. Lurking is there, which is this word that is used in Psalm 23, actually, to say that sin is lying at your doorstep. Very much like God has caused you to lie down in green pastures, that phrase. It's the very same word that's used here, that sin is lying down at your door. In other words, sin is, you're allowing sin to take, kind of, take, a, take up residence in your doorframe, in your home. Right there. You are allowing that to happen. But what's fascinating about this phraseology is actually not the word sin and lurking. It's actually these two words. It's the word well and master. Because those words, and again, this is so packed with meaning, I'm just skimming over it, are actually resonant of what happened in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. The word well there is actually the word good. If you do good, the word tov, then you will be able to master and subdue it. 
which is the same word that God tells Adam and Eve what they are supposed to do to all of creation. In other words, this context in which sin is first being used is actually pulling through a creation language narrative. And it starts with an if-then proposition. Sin is not the problem in that passage. The problem is not pursuing the goal. Sin then comes. Missing the mark is the result of not doing good. Do you catch that? If you do not do good, then, comma, sin is going to be lurking at your door. In other words, the whole point of the narrative is to say, I have created you to be my representatives in this world, to be good, to be light, to be life, to be grace, to be love, to be my image and my likeness in this world. Do that. But if you don't do that, comma, then sin is lurking then missing the mark is lurking. In other words, you have to be intentional and focused. I want to be that representative. I have to choose, I have to decide to want to pursue the goodness of God's creation. I have to actively pursue God's goodness. And only if I don't, then sin comes lurking. In summary, perhaps we could say, and again, this is a little bit of a reference to last week. Sorry for so many references. I I would encourage you to listen to that. Part of what this story is exhorting us to do is you have a choice. Choose to pursue this creation story. Choose to pursue being God's image and his likeness. Pursue that. Actively choose this. Actively be that representative, as we saw with the bishop with Jean Valjean last week in Les Mis. Pursue that. And when you do that, you will be actively overcoming sin. And the reason why I think this is so important is because so much of our Christian theology has inherited an idea that your entire goal is to stop sinning. And I love this passage because the sin is really just the thing that comes after the thing that we have forgotten to do, which is just embrace, choose, hold on to, love, chase after being God's image and likeness in this world. His goodness, his grace, his chesed, his loving kindness, his welcome and his love. Do that. The whole point of this narrative is not to focus on Cain being a sinner. The whole point is to focus on who Cain and Abel were created to be in the first place. And if you choose not to do that, then, then sin comes. Then the world becomes broken. Are you with me? Okay, very quickly. Second word, transgression, is often used in conjunction with the word sin. And I just want to share, I think this goes exactly with it, even though it's like a second layer This is used in Isaiah chapter 1 at the very beginning of this prophecy. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled, transgressed against me. This particular phraseology, notice the creation language yet again. Heavens, earth, God speaking divine words to bring order. God has created all of us to be that. But we have 
rebelled against that. We have transgressed against that. In Psalm 36, it's used to speak of the wickedness in our hearts. And Psalm 103 is used to describe something that is within us, that is tearing us from that relationship. And fortunately, because of God's goodness and his love, he casts all of that as far as the east is from the west. He forgives us in that particular sense. These passages indicate that the word transgression is used to describe not again something that you did, but an agreement that was lost here, a trust that was broken. We were supposed to be in relationship. I raised up children. You were in my family. This is how we do things in my family. And you rebelled against me. And, and the rebellion is not that you did bad things. It's that I, I, thought, I thought we had an agreement. I thought, we were, I thought we were together in this. I thought there was a mutual understanding of who we were to be and who we were supposed to be in this world. And Pesha, transgression, rebellion, again, doesn't have this sense of something's wrong with you, but something has been broken between us. I thought we were supposed to be God's image bearers in this world, and I said, no, forget it. I'm not, on, I'm not on board with that. I, I don't want to be a part of that. That agenda is not a part of who I am, and nor do I want it to be. Much of Christian theology has defined sin as an act of immorality. I'm going to suggest to you, my friends, that the biblical narrative seems to suggest that sin is actually a violation of trust. It is a broken relationship. It is we were created in this divine image of God to be in beautiful relationship and covenant with God, with one another, and with this world. And we said, no, we don't want to be. So the acts of immorality only come as a result of the breaking of the trust. And you know this, every single institution, every single institution has rules and regulations that everybody could possibly follow. We could clearly follow the law. We could clearly follow the rules and the regulations. I haven't broken any you know, stipulations, but the way in which they act and the way in which they behave and the way in which they carry out those laws is a fundamental breach of the trust that you are supposed to have within the context of that institution. It is very possible to keep every single law to the letter and still sin because the relationship is... you. You're keeping that law, but the way in which you're keeping it is violating the relationship that we were supposed to have. This can happen in theology. This can happen in education. This can clearly happen in government. This can happen in relationships. You can hold on to, I didn't do anything wrong. But I thought we were together in this. I thought there were some fundamental values that we were both pursuing together for how we were to interpret those commandments and those laws and those stipulations. I thought we were together. And Chata and Pesha seem to suggest that that is what is ultimately broken. You no longer see one another as your brother and your sister. You see them as the other. And you can still treat them according to the laws, but as soon as you shift and you see another person of a different race, a different color, a different nationality who speaks a different language, as soon as you see them as an other rather than as a brother or a sister or as part of your family, you have transgressed. There was supposed to be a divine trust here that every single person on this planet was created in God's image and God's likeness. And so that's why you welcome everybody 
what good is it if you love those who love you? Love those who don't love you. Love your enemies. Welcome the stranger. Pray for those who persecute you. Because it is by doing that that you reestablish this divine trust. So, I'm going to suggest to you that sin is, in some definitions, like the acts that we do, is simply a result of a complete loss of our focus, a loss of our identity, a loss of pursuing being God's image bearers in this world. And we ultimately transgress when we say, yeah, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And that ultimately is what is wrong with the world. So what is the opposite? Restoring that faithfulness, being true to our story, and recommitting ourselves once again to being God's image bearers in this world, and to read our scriptures carefully and thoroughly, and to forsake all other temptations that might lead us towards power or hierarchy or systems of injustice, and to say, no, 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 God has granted this amazing relationship, this covenant of divine loving kindness and favor. That is who I am supposed to be. And if we could renew our identities in being that, comma, then sin won't be lurking at our door. Because we will have taken upon ourselves once again to be that divine image and that likeness. So, my friends, I hope that this helps us understand a little bit about what's going on and then maybe a little bit about how to address the issue. I clearly, clearly, there's a lot more to discuss from here. Um, but I'm going to propose to you that this is one of the most fundamental issues. Why sin is being used all the time, why transgression, iniquity, all those words are used. It's a fundamental lack of trust, a broken relationship. We have broken our faithfulness. And God is in the process and in the hope. And part of what we'll get to in the rest of the series is restoring that trust, restoring that relationship so that we can be restored as those image bearers in this particular world. Okay, let me say a quick prayer. God, thank you for your story once again. And I pray that any guilt and shame that has been heaped upon us because of the word sin is removed once again and is replaced with the profound sense that even though humanity has been so unfaithful, you have always been faithful. You have never broken relationship with us. So may we restore that once again with you reclaim our mission as divine image bearers in this world so that we can be the representatives of your love and your grace and your welcome to everyone. And I pray this in your name.